Hello and welcome to yet another episode of the Massage Matters podcast with the Massage Collective. Me, Matt Scarsbrook and Anna-Maria Mazzieri. Once again, before we get cracking, if you haven't yet subscribed to the podcast or left us a review, please do so. We'd be ever so grateful. The reviews in particular do help make sure that we're getting our information out to as many people as possible. But looking at today and session 27, we have managed to secure a guest in such a different time zone that no one is sure whether it's day or night right now. Um, Dan Arbilla is joining us from Sydney, Australia. Yep, in the middle of uh, in the middle of Dan's night. So I'm going to uh, we'll give Dan the benefit of the doubt if he uh, nods off halfway through the podcast. We'll just give him a nudge uh, and wake him up again. Um, but Dan is an exercise physiologist and also um, runs the the Knowledge Exchange Facebook group, which is an incredible resource that um, that the therapists of all types sh- should uh, definitely go and check out. And we'll talk a little bit more about that later on. But particularly for today, um, Dan is coming on to discuss a little bit about what it means to um, be psychologically informed in our practice. So that's what we're going to talk about today. Dan, to start with, do you want to give us a little bit of um, a background to you, um, exercise physiology, and, uh, um, and what kind of has engaged you in this, in this fantastic biopsychosocial healthcare discussion? Thanks, Matt, and thank you both for the opportunity. I feel like the more that professions talk together and, and we all learn from each other, I feel the, the less kind of silos there'll be, and it's probably a passionate rant they'll hear me talk about during this one. But as a basic intro, uh, I'm an exercise physiologist working in a private studio called Barbell Psychology in Sydney, Australia. And I'm also a mentor and course facilitator with the team at the Knowledge Exchange. Um, so for my work with clients, I tend to see more people with persisting pain who've tried most of the traditional interventions, the corrective exercises, the gym strengthening to reduce their symptoms, but they still have pain and they don't understand why, and it's kind of getting in the way of their life. And for my work with clinicians, I tend to see people who've come across some of the paradigms, the theories of a biopsychosocial person-centered approach, but they're struggling to then apply it within the the frameworks and the models and the constraints of private practices that they work within. Um, so for both, I focus on giving people the the tools to to handle the discomforts, whether that's with a, a painful body part or not having an answer to a client that's in front of them, alongside the the external pressures of their contexts. And I guide them through the, the processes, the experiences to reflect on what they've tried so far and what's been working and workable and helpful and give them a bit more confidence that they can handle the struggle so they can still do the things that, that matter to them, whether that's kind of the weekly group exercise sessions or getting back into a, a walking activity or for a clinician, maybe practicing in a way that aligns with their values and the kind of clinician that they, they want to be. Um, I really, I've got to say, I really like that that connection you've made between those those two components of your sort of professional role in in, in that handling of discomfort. I think that's fantastic, and and certainly, whilst as clinicians, I think Anna and I can and can understand where you're coming from when you're talking about that that sort of helping a client, helping a patient uh, handle their discomfort. Uh, I think to speak of it, particularly when talking to professionals. Um, is is brilliant and and is sort of what we try and do on on this podcast within the the, the network of massage and manual therapies um, in particular. Um, but I know you actually work with a, a, a very broad range of of uh, professions, don't you? Yes, yes, and I have definitely interacted with OTs. We always forget the OTs, so shout out to Bronnie. We haven't forgotten you. Um, massage therapists as well. There's some great ones who can really provide that context that I, based on my context, cannot provide. And there's very much a unique, safe, uh, therapeutic context within a massage therapies clinic room, um, which off- affords so many opportunities for very unique interactions and, and conversations that they might not even have with a psychologist. So I think that the more that we talk about 
things such as psychologically informed practice, the, the better for, for all of us. Um, and you probably want to know what the hell an exercise physiologist is. Absolutely. Indeed. Yes, Wikipedia was not that helpful. <laughs> yeah. Uh, at times I don't know myself, but, um, so with the history of exercise physiology, it sprung about mainly when the government realized that chronic disease burden and healthcare costs was on the rise. And it seemed like perhaps other allied health professionals were heading towards different directions at that time. And there was no real um, specified profession specifically for these chronic diseases and how to manage them. So uh, we sprung about sometime. I don't even know when I'm the worst person to ask about this. I had to look it up. Um, but we basically use exercise interventions for a range of medical conditions. So any condition where exercise has evidence to improve a person's health status and their quality of life. So looking at cardiovascular disease, metabolic conditions, neurological, um, cancer, mental health, musculoskeletal injuries and pain. And, and that's kind of our expertise. Um, I know in Canada, they call them kinesiologists, uh, but I'm not too sure if there's an equivalent in the uk i don't think it is i think it's mm. more divided between ot's and physiotherapists isn't it matt what do you think uh, yeah i mean having having had a, a quick look um it looks like exercise physiologist might exist as a title within the nhs in some very specific circumstances but actually it's not a degree title you you would enter it via what we would call a sports science degree perhaps and then specialize but again i don't think it covers quite the same i'm going to sort of scope of practice that you've just described there which is that essentially you know where the evidence base suggests exercise you can you can intervene uh and and, and play a role because it sounds like actually you have a I mean, obviously, we know from the evidence base on exercise, there's quite a lot of conditions that it can help with. But but even from what you were just explaining there, yes. do you mind um, do you mind touching on when you say exercise? What do you mean by exercise, and and, and what kind of um, if you will modalities of exercise do you prefer to work with? Absolutely, that's a great question. I think um, a question that we need to ask ourselves more of that like the definitions of what we mean. There's so many buzzwords out there. So what what is exercise? Um, it, technically, it is planned and structured physical activity towards a specific goal. Um, now, when I am talking pragmatically to someone in front of me and they mention exercise, I would be wondering what they mean by exercise because there's so many of these connotations that we attach to the words, the word exercise. I think of a, a gym, a sweaty, bro sciencey environment, people looking in the mirrors and obsessing over their bodies. Um, other people might think of walking every day as a, their kind of exercise routine. Um, in terms of how I use it, it would kind of align maybe more with an OT's meaningful valued activity uh, modifications and like what someone would want to be doing when they're when they're coming into me, seeing me because of a pain problem, what they would be doing if that pain wasn't an issue. At the same time, if they also bring about some health concerns for like weight management concerns, or they've got a history of cardio cardiovascular disease and their GP referred them onto me, then I can talk about, okay, maybe we can incorporate a bit more physical activity and, and exercise at certain intensity levels to provide that, that therapeutic effect and uh, at a sufficient dose for adaptations for their health benefits. Okay. So if we, for example, if I jump on your Instagram and, and, and it's kind of in the name, I guess, in the studio you work with, it's, it's barbell psychology. So I see you doing an awful lot of, of strength based training with people. Do you, for example, take them for a run or do you prescribe them walks or go for walks with them even whilst you're having kind of conversation? How, how does a normal kind of uh, session with you kind of feel, look and feel? Yeah, it's um, people walk in and they see the barbell and they it's in the name as well so can't really hide it from them it's, it's kind of like um if, if you don't want to do a particular intervention and you've got that intervention everywhere on the wall and your kind of the clinic's name has that intervention in them it's like oh it's very difficult to get them away from that but in saying that i do see a lot of runners and it would be very much barbell centric if i was <laughs> to just get them to deadlift even though I love deadlifts, they're the, by far the best exercise, not biased at all. 
Um, but yeah, it would be very much focusing on the context in which their, their movement goal is. Um, so I do see people, we, we go outside, I'm, I'm very lucky to um, work near Hyde Park, which isn't as impressive as, as the one in London, but it's got some, some area for people to, to move around in and, and do some outdoor exercises if, if that's where the pain arises or, or what they want to get back into. Yeah, so going back a little bit to what you said about having the barbell there in, in your clinic and a senior clinic, I mean, from, from the video, and it looks really smart, really sleek. But do you find that for some of those clients, for that, some of those people with long-term pain and some of those that they might be more um, fearful or indeed ex- exercise averse, do you find that the, the barbell might seem to them as a barrier might might shock them how 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 do you how do you go because it does here in my clinic and it kind of people um yeah it creates a barrier a little bit at the beginning absolutely i i think um i've been very lucky to work with a overly pedantic probably ocd diagnosed psychologist uh anthony i, I can banter against him because he gives me crap all the time. Um, but he's very, very particular on the context and the environment and making sure the weights are in the right places. So it doesn't, you know, it, it looks very neat and tidy and there's colored weights and there's um, all the marketing they does involves more of the average looking person. There's no kind of muscle clad person in singlets doing exercises. So he, he does try and in, incorporate as much safety messages to someone so there is still the i wish i had it with me now so i can just look at it and observe it but there's the the furniture itself is very warm and comforting looking the color schemes he worked with a designer to make sure that it it appears more like a psychologist studio with it just so happens that there's a a barbell and olympic weightlifting plates and everything on the side that that's great how you can actually modify that what it normally would be associated with a harsh uh, environment and actually soften it up by adding colors and adding, again, the environment, the way we prepare our environment can make such a difference, can be can have a therapeutic value per se. I, I like that, I like that very much. Absolutely. And if, if there's opportunities for, say, uh, kettlebells as well, I can imagine in, in certain contexts, uh, I can imagine black kind of mechanical looking, maybe dirty kettlebells versus very colorful, bright, uh, smaller size kettlebells might be a bit more um, safety uh, inducing. So yes, absolutely. I, I agree the, the context and how we shape that context Steam. makes a huge Steam difference. Messages, and, yeah. yeah. This, this idea of, of setting it out a bit like a psychologist's office, I love, uh, and is kind of the, 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 the way I'm trying to to style my my treatment space in in so much that I want it to be and funny enough uh, Anna and I and Becky have been talking about how we want to um, lay out uh, a stand actually coming up at, at Therapy Expo we want to make it feel like a space where conversations occur and where the treatment almost becomes secondary um you know the 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 intervention almost becomes secondary and it's actually more about the relationship that you form with the person and the conversations you have now that from what you've just been saying i think probably leads us really nicely on and i didn't realize you actually work with a psychologist so maybe you can um you know build on that for us but obviously today we've wanted to to really dive into what is psychologically informed practice so do you want to kick start us off by providing a bit of a, a definition? Because, you know, we, we, we've already said we like definitions. Give us your definition of what, what psychologically informed practice is. Um, why is it different? Where does it fit in the BPS model? You know, you, you have some fantastic conversations with your colleagues on the uh, Knowledge Exchange podcast. I think your September episode, you were talking um, uh, about the fact that BPS isn't something you do to someone. <laughs> every every interaction is BPS by definition. So it'd be really interesting to, to know why we, we pull out psychologically informed practice in particular. So with that enormous open-ended, not really a question, Dan, over <laughs> to you. Absolutely. Uh, I think you said it where 
even if we maybe for some reason didn't want to be BPS, everything we do is BPS. And in a similar way, psychology is always there in all of our interactions with humans. We're not just dealing with tissues, we're dealing with living, breathing, biological beings within their their context, their society. So even if we're not aware of it, our our actions, our perceptions, their actions, their perceptions, the, the patient, the clients are shaped by our cognitions, our beliefs, our experiences, our meanings, uh, our expectations, our relational responding. So the, the old kind of, or still used term, the transference, counter-transference, mm. all these things are, are involved in practice. So if I were to differentiate psychologically informed practice from perhaps more of the traditional approaches uh, rather than just focusing on reducing someone's symptoms it would be more about reducing the the impact of those symptoms even if those symptoms remain um, so more about minimizing the the disability and incorporating that that person's beliefs their cognitions their emotions as part of the picture yeah. So it's, we, we can't really separate the the mind from the body, from the context. Um, and the psychologically informed practice just takes that into account. I think we still need a, a big shift in, uh, in paradigm still, because I still... I think we we still differentiate in too much uh, profiling the injury and non profiling the person enough. I think we still differentiate too much what's uh, a causative a structural causation of an injury and uh, uh, a more uh, psychosocial um, f- psychosocial factor. I think we are still trying to differentiate them and we haven't yet uh, and I think psychologically informed practice should be the norm should be the norm and then what we're doing within the psychologically informed practice it's uh, obviously it's uh, differentiates between uh, different professions and skill set but we should be informed by the person person's needs uh, and not only the person's injury. Absolutely. And it's um, the, the funny thing is, it's, it's not like we do talk therapy. I think that's one of the misconceptions. So we can still do all the, the things that we do within our context, within our scope of practice. Uh, and even psychology itself is often involving a lot of exposure, a lot of behavior change principles, a lot of active listening, a lot of these skills. Um, so when it's psychologically informed, what we're doing is just adding on top some of these approaches and frameworks, but to then think that we would just become a psychologist is, is a, a, a bit cute. Like it's a bit adorable because it's like they go through so many years of training, right? It's, it's like if we were to say, um, have a psychologist do some sit to stands and then they suddenly become a physio or an EP or a movement professional. So we can still use some of these tools and the the concepts without diving into the treating the uh, their mental health condition and that's and that's a really important point actually i think um and and has come up in previous conversations uh with with clinicians when we start talking elements of of psychology predominantly when we're talking about the you know the biopsychosocial framework if if we can call it that, uh, you know, the, the existence that all of the psychologies and everything we, we discuss, as soon as you mention the word psychology, there is certainly in my experience, this kind of feeling that, well, am I overstepping the boundaries here by considering psychology, even potentially discussing psychology or the impacts because I'm not a psychologist. I'm not a counselor. Um, when I had a, a look into this, I found, um, a 2011 paper that was talking about the, the application of psychologically informed practice. And it, it had within it a nice little um, a diagram which, which suggested for the proposed management of low back pain that essentially psychologically informed practice is just merely that incorporation of the patient's beliefs and attitudes and emotional responses, et cetera, as a goal, as, and the primary goal of that being secondary prevention of disability. Does that kind of ring true with what you see and, and how you apply it? 
Yes, absolutely. Um, and on top of that, the I think what I need to be mindful of is my biases more with an acceptance and commitment therapy lens. So there might be some differences. We might talk about this with, say, a, a lot of the evidence base has uh, CBT as the main intervention space, in, especially with chronic pain. Um, so there might be a few differences there. But yes, as you said, it's acknowledging, incorporating, integrating the person's cognitions, their, their beliefs about their pain. I think this is a question that is sometimes avoided or, or not asked enough because of what shows up for us when someone's really distressed or when someone is um, telling us how they're grieving the loss of the person that they were because of their persisting back pain. They don't, they're so hopeless, they can't imagine life without back pain. That's really uncomfortable for us as clinicians. So I think it's it's natural for people to want to avoid those questions, just like it's natural for people to want to avoid painful situations. So this is probably a good point then to to dive into that CBT versus ACT models and approaches and ideas, because I think most most of our listeners will be aware of CBT, cognitive behavioral therapy, um, and certainly anyone who has experience within the NHS of a mental health condition, um, of, of which I am one, CBT is the the sort of the, the, the frontline approach. The, the, you know, it's either done in group therapy or perhaps you might be given sort of some one-to-one time. And it's certainly the approach that most psychotherapists in the UK would would use. But in that, again, within the UK, and it'd be interesting to see what it's like uh, over in Australia, CBT is is the realm of a professional psychologist or someone with an equivalent sort of counseling type degree it's not something that a massage therapist can even go and study we don't have the prerequisites whereas act acceptance commitment therapy is something because it's i view it as a bit more sort of open access (laughs) if, if you will um as a model it's almost a framework that is available and is taught to msk therapists of all flavors uh if they're interested so what are the main differences as, as you see them? How are they applied differently? Um, why do you bias towards ACT? Yeah, it's, um, it's interesting that the CBT is, is harder to access, at least in, so in my context and from what I can access when it comes to these courses, I, I am not a clinical psychologist and uh, I can access more like weekend courses and, and and those kind of continuing education opportunities. Um, from my understanding of CBT is it's traditionally more about changing some unhelpful thought pattern or some uh, challenging some maladaptive or irrational beliefs that someone has and their, their behavioral patterns associated with those beliefs. Now, nowadays the, the shift and this is talking with with Anthony Berrick, the psychologist that I work with, it seems to be there are a lot more overlaps and because ACT itself is a third wave CBT. So it sits within the the family of CBT and there's many different subcategories of therapies within cognitive behavioral therapy. And even touching on that, nowadays we have cognitive functional therapy with uh, Peter O'Sullivan's work. They use a lot of CBT um, concepts within that framework. So I feel like that might be a bit more accessible for for movement for manual therapists. Yeah, well, CFT is certainly something that, um, I mean, it's a little bit of a sore subject with me because I've now missed Peter for, was it two or three years on the trot? Thanks, COVID. Um, And and unfortunately, when he moved um, to, uh, because I believe he was, prevented from leaving the country or at least traveling by his university for a while um i, I couldn't unfortunately meet, meet, go to the online version but yes cft is definitely more accessible uh for for msk therapists and and, and with your question of the the differences so with cbt be more along the lines of challenging some of those uh, irrational or unhelpful beliefs and act or acceptance and commitment therapy would be more working alongside them so the technique is diffusion so making space for some of these thoughts and beliefs and being willing to work with them notice them 
observe them as they are and and work towards the person's values rather than jumping in and, and challenging them. So both can use still some of the very similar uh, concepts of exposure therapy, of mindfulness, of experiential learning, um, and they can be in many ways combined. For a lot of people with pain, it, if we start challenging some of the beliefs, it can fuel a bit of a backfire effect, especially if they've been emotionally attached to, say, a specific diagnosis as the cause of their belief. A little bit like, again, you touched on this in in uh, one of your recent podcasts on the knowledge exchange. It's a little bit like when therapists themselves identify with a a modality or identify with with something regarding their profession that uh, that that can come under fire. You're gonna feel defensive and reflecting on your point there. If someone has lived with persistent pain for an extended period, it it's going to start defining them because it defines what they can do. It defines who they can see and when they can see them and how they do it. And to tell someone that it's all bollocks <laughs> based on the science is, is probably not the best way to start a conversation with someone. Absolutely. And, um, and even sometimes when we try and, and be a bit logical and, and rational, at least if we're, um, reasoning with them it, it can come across as persuading them to towards a different strategy whereas we can i mean the, the question is if someone is riding a horse and they think that it's a unicorn are they still riding a horse i have no <laughs> idea how to answer that question <laughs> so can this person i think the, the question more clinically and pragmatically in, in clinic for for us is can this person with their current beliefs about their pain still do the activities with that belief, with their current thoughts. I think once we open up that possibility, then we can be a little bit more flexible in, in working with certain beliefs. Yes, it is. Uh, in clinical practice, I really, one of my biggest struggles is exactly that, is to, to help the person understand that the uh, or to help the person shift no understand sorry that was quite, quite patronizing for me to help the person shift they um the view from wanting to know exactly where the pain came from wanting to know uh, uh wanting to remove the pain to actually help them actually you can we can for a, for a time being go back to your your meaningful activities even if there is some discomfort because they come to us and they come to us with the preconceived idea that they want the pain removed and unless the pain goes, they cannot go back to the meaningful activities. So pain becomes the only outcome. And the other thing that I really struggle with is, um, is about... They, they definitely want to know the, di let's call it into brackets, diagnosis. And Ben Cormack actually said something really powerful in our last podcast, in our last chat. He said, do they want a diagnosis or do they want an explanation of what's happening to them, which I think is quite powerful. But those two things uh, are quite difficult. You know, how do you shift that, that, that focus from I want pain be gone to well, maybe we could go back to meaningful activity, even if pain might be there. What do you suggest? Yes, it's that's one of the most common challenges when it, I, th I feel like it's, it's not the person's fault that that's the case because we've kind of led them down that belief or that their experiences with the healthcare system has led them down that belief. So I think that the first point in terms of a practical way of approaching it would be to validate that it makes complete sense that they would want to find out the diagnosis because that's what everyone says. And that's what we've been taught ourselves, even in our clinical training. So once we've developed some kind of trust and rapport, it'd be along the lines of if we can be finding out where they would be willing to experiment, to try something different with, with some curiosity. 
if we can reflect their story and, and we can see maybe there's um, some disparities or maybe there's opportunities to to be a bit more aware of all the different ways that they can do their meaningful activities or the different ways that they can work with pain, maybe some rules that they've been told and how those rules with, with movement or how those rules with their pain, like for instance, they need to sleep in a certain position, how maybe there might be some ways to play around with that. Or if there are ways to change some of the behaviors attached to the beliefs or the rules versus trying to, I guess, attack the content of those beliefs. We're trying to see how have those beliefs shown through their pain behaviors. So we'd be more along the lines of if there's ways that we can change their, their behaviors rather than trying to focus on the diagnosis. And in that process, we're making space for the diagnosis because throughout we haven't kind of invalidated that diagnosis or invalidated their need for a diagnosis. We've made space for that whilst focusing on the action and some things that they can do for themselves. And that's and that's one of the, the sort of key tenets of accept, acceptance and commitment therapy, isn't it? That psychological flexibility. You used that word um, a, a, a moment ago when you were describing, uh, I can't remember the context now, but, but flexibility for me is the word that's been going around through everything you've been saying there. You're sort of going, okay, this is a rule, but rules can bend. And let's see how far we can make it bend before perhaps you then start asking the question, was that rule precise enough to begin with? Or do you perhaps need to change the paradigm through which you uh, consider your pain and the, and the causes and limitations of your pain? Yeah. Absolutely. That kind of fair? Yes. Yes. And, and playing around with, how that rule has worked out for them so it's it's common uh, a common pattern or theme that i come across even in the the exercise realm is i need to do x before xyz before i can go back into my activities now in a way what has that led them towards so what's been the the consequences the costs of trying to find a fix. So they've been trying to find a fix for a very, very long time to reduce their pain makes complete sense. Having that, that therapeutic alliance, that trust, that rapport. And, and this is another way that a, a manual therapist or a massage therapist would be able to, 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 to have these conversations because they probably haven't been asked such a, a, a deep conversation, uh, a deep question before in relation to their pain, but how is, how has that worked out for them? How has the, the, the search for a cure, for a, a fix, what has it led them towards? What have been the, the consequences of finding a fix? And then we can talk about this process of, of creative hopelessness or of trying to maybe re reflect with curiosity with, without judgment as to some of the costs involved in that pursuit of trying to find the magic formula or find the, the pain reducing uh, magic pill. And in the long term, what has it led to? And I feel like that's why circling back to the safety that we can create in our context as clinic, as clinicians, why that's so important. Cause if we haven't facilitated that in the first place, then they're going to not give us uh, an honest, response or that they, they might be holding on fused with the beliefs that no, what are you talking about? I just want my pain gone. Like, what, what are you doing? Why are you even asking me that? That reminds me of a, a conversation I saw taking place in a forum with some of our um, sort of core, core team members uh, or wider, wider team uh, with the, the, the school that we work with. Um, and they were reflecting on the, the safety element of the context in which they treat going back to how, you know, you've, how you set up your, your clinic space, um, that because psychology is involved in everything. I remember, um, one of our, um, one of our team, Sarah was saying how she totally, after coming to this, um, uh, sort of realization totally changed how her clinic was presented. So no longer does she have like muscle charts and, and no, the, the average, that fits no one kind of uh, skeletal uh, 
uh, you know, skeleton hanging in the, in the, in the, in the corner. Instead, it's just nice pieces of artwork. It's just a nice feel, it, nice feel to the place as opposed to feeling clinical the moment you walk in. Um, and, 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 you know, that to me, again, what you were saying there just kind of brought that conversation back to, to mind that you're right. You can't escape that psychology is a part of everything. You need to be able to consider the individual and the journey they've been on and, and be able to ask those questions, but it has to be in a, in a environment that feels safe. Exactly. So, so how would you, how does that go for you in a, in a sort of a standard session? You know, talk us through perhaps if, if you wouldn't mind, like a little bit of a, a case study or, 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 or an example of how those kind of, kind of conversations might go between you and say someone who's presenting with, with a long-term back pain. So uh, on top of um, the assessment process, so ruling out red flags, full medical history, tissue healing considerations, is there a, a mechanism of injury, you know, going through a, a thorough subjective or as Ben Cormack mentioned, a clinical conversation with someone. On top of that, it'd be being curious about the values behind some of those goals. So the, the why behind wanting to reduce pain. On top of that, we'd be trying to see if there's some kind of behavior change that we can do. Because I was definitely stuck with the symptom modification procedure chasing and feeling like I was a god if I could do an exercise or a specific you know modality technique and then bam their pain is gone and I'm, I'm I should be praised and I'm the best clinician in, in Sydney but so rather than focusing on the the symptoms and and this can be both explicitly and implicitly with our language our body language it'd be trying to focus more on what they can do in terms of their behaviors their responses to pain. Um, so example, uh, had a lady with, with back pain that she's had since her teenage years, she'd seen osteos, chiros, physio specialists, given a, a range of different diagnoses that and some of them seem to kind of contradict each other. So she was left a bit confused. Now, one of the things that really helps to facilitate, uh, uh more of that, uh, function focus than a pain reduction focus was. I don't know if you guys have heard of the patient-specific functional scale. Mm. So it's, uh, it's not, I'm not, I'm not as familiar with it as perhaps I should be. So, so I highly recommend this one. It's, it's basically a, a way before a consult to find out, I think it's three, there's different types, but like three functional uh, tasks or activities where the, they notice the pain the most or what they would, or functional activities that they would like to improve in relation to their pain. So it already starts up, sets up the context for having these conversations. And I think that's a, a really good way of pre-framing this approach before you even Yeah, the why, the why yeah. is almost implicit in that conversation, isn't it? Exactly, yeah. Um, so for this lady, it was to get out of bed without pain. So funnily enough, they can still have a pain reduction goal within that. But at least we've, yeah. we've kind of headed towards that direction. Um, uh, to touch her toes and to do sit-ups. So with our subjective, our clinical conversation, she had tried some stretching, some specific exercises, a variety of different interventions, and they all worked temporarily, but she kind of shames herself for not doing the stretches when she doesn't do them or she forgets them. And, you know, life gets in the way, like she's a mum and needs to do all these, you know, house chores and her work and basically she wasn't able to do as much stretching as she thought she needed. So she blamed herself. Um, similar with Pilates, uh, exercise and, and specific exercises. So when she does them, she feels great, but then the pain comes back and she's, she was never really questioned as to why she thinks those specific exercises work. And so that was a bit of curiosity that we, we could elicit and then have a conversation as to the actual, uh, the main, uh, driving, maybe uh, um, the main ingredient, if, if we can find out why she thought it worked, then maybe we can find out different ways that she can incorporate some form of, of movement or some kind of self-management strategy. Um, so back to the appointment, uh, the appointment was in the early afternoon. So unfortunately didn't get her first thing, like test out what she's like first thing in the morning. 
but we agreed to work on that second goal of trying to touch her toes. And she was, she was willing to, to try it. She had previous experiences where she got stuck in a bent forward position through the conversation. She came, there was a few rules, like I should be able to keep my back straight because I see everyone do it and I can't like all my friends can keep their legs straight and I can't. So all these kind of already some stories, so if we go back to that psychologically informed practice, some stories that she had fused with had shown up and through this movement experiments through some observations and, and mindfulness of what she was doing as she was doing the movement. So the question is, what do you notice as you do that movement? Um, and through my observation, we, we brought, I noticed that she was holding her breath. And so we brought some attention to her breathing by giving some, some cues to, to breathe out. So exhale on exertion, very much more of a CFT Peter O'Sullivan approach. Mm. She was then able to reach down further. Now, what I used to do two years ago is be a bit more corrective and be like, oh, you should just breathe. Like that's why. So I would jump in with my reason. Now, instead with a more of a psychologically informed approach, rather than making it about me rushing in to make sense of her experience, we reflected on the experience. What, what, what does that experience mean to her? So I, I asked her. And also you exposed her to the fact that she can do that and that there are no consequences so that there is then a, a change in the processing of her, her experience and that will change what next time you're giving an extra you're giving an extra option next time she's going to go and do and do the same movement the option would be yeah am I hurt but actually the, the option is well actually it's a bit of discomfort but I can do it and I find that the exposure it's very 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 powerful because then like you say they make sense themselves. I'll go back to, to what Bronnie, Bronnie said once, and it really remained in my head. I love it. She said, our role is just to help them putting the dots together. And exactly. this is, I couldn't agree more. We, that's why at the beginning, I think, you know, we're still, and actually I think we said it in Ben Cormack, we are still too therapy-centric. We, we're certainly getting better, but we need to be, again, more client-centric, person-centric. So it's not about me making sense of their pain. It's about how do they make sense of the pain and how can I support them making sense and just exposing them to the fact that, and that's why I love manual therapy, Dan. I mean, we, we are soft tissue therapy, so we use massage and, and other manual techniques because sometimes you, for some individuals, you can expose them to a range of motion that previously they might have felt it dangerous. So we're exposing them into the, to, to emotion within a safe environment, and then they can start then make sense themselves of it. And I find that quite powerful. Absolutely. And it's, um, so I talked with a massage therapist friend of mine, Toby Coy, that did mm. a podcast with mm. him as well. Yeah. We, we talked about how we can facilitate someone's willingness and curiosity through touch. So yes. touch is outside of my scope of practice, but using this framework, I can absolutely see the possibility of using, um, Manu therapy through that lens where it is building some curiosity like well it's interesting when when i use this technique on maybe a different area a slightly less specific spot that you mentioned it had the same effect so yes. what what do you notice what what yes. comes up for you what what does that mean if, if i was able to do a slightly different technique or a slightly different movement a slightly different exercise and it brought about a very similar um a change or in your experience, what does that mean then to the meaning that you attach to your pain and, and moving forward, how can we then apply this in your, in your context outside of the clinic? One of, one of the bit, things that's, that's coming to mind listening to you speak now is, is, uh, and I'll observe you, you ask an awful lot of questions to engage the client in 
in their thought processes. I think, you know, from listening to you, you are, by definition, you are drawing attention, drawing their clients' attention to their own thought processes and asking them, is this version of reality real, useful? Uh, does it, does it, does it marry up? Now, one of the aspects that you come across when you start sort of diving into understanding pain and, you know, when you, when you get your, your geek on is this idea of pain education is this idea of, of essentially telling the client what pain is and what it isn't and, and, and how it, how it arises as a, as a conscious experience. But it strikes me that that is perhaps not what you're doing through your approach, or at least certainly not quite as overtly is, is that, is that sort of true? Do you have a, a kind of um, a reflection perhaps on this sort of overt telling of what is pain as best we know versus this drawing out just a different interpretation of the client's experience? Yeah, I used to very much um, kind of encourage that more of a, a pain science informed uh, education piece during a session. Uh, a lot more than I do now, where I nowadays I find it to be more effective in terms of the long-term learning experience if they can figure it out through some kind of experience, through some kind of uh, movement, through some kind of active reflection. Because it's amazing once we facilitate the the environment, the context, and afford them the opportunities to play around and experiment with different strategies and techniques and behaviors that they come towards like pain science principles anyway. They, they come to realize that they're not causing damage. When we, they, yeah, when they're so we ready. Provide that, yes, we provide that education through yeah. the, the reflection rather yeah. than more didactically. Yeah. Like I, I, I would much rather, and I, I do actually, um, provide resources after a consult if they're willing and curious about I less so now provide that information for the sake of providing information if it doesn't lead to behavior change. That's my kind of approach that's evolving at the moment. And I think it's, it's fantastic when clinicians like yourself talk about and reflect that pra their practice has changed and continues to change, mm -hmm. um, you know, in, in this and, and in all aspects of, of clinical interactions, because, you know, a lot of the time therapists do what they do because they've always done it. And the idea then that they're challenged and they're asked to change feels really alien. Whereas almost the approach you're taking there, and I know this isn't, you know, talking specifically psychologically informed practice, but more just the fact that your practice has evolved um, as you have understood more. And almost that is the sign of a, of a, of a good clinician who's, who is taking on board all of the, the evidence as well as their, their clinical expertise into how best to apply what we know now. Um, no, that, that's, that's fascinating. Thank you. Cause yeah, we, we've reflected on that. The sort of almost explain pain approach has seems to be undergoing a shift in that it's, it's less of a didactic. This is what pain is and that will help you and more, uh, um, discovery from the client. Mm -hmm. Precisely, mm -hmm. yeah, that discovery process that mm -hmm. you were speaking about. There. Awesome. Okay, so one of the one of the bits then I'm I'm really interested in. Um, again, because I, I I've you know forgive me I didn't realize this, but you obviously work side by side with a psychologist, if I if I understand correctly. He wishes, but oh, okay. more in the same space. <laughs> so in the same <laughs> space, yeah, and under the same banner with the same values, um, different mm -hmm. days. Yeah. Different he, he's days. A, okay. He's a big dude. So I don't think I can fit in the room if he was in the same room. As me. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Do you have a, a referral pathway, I guess, with each other it kind of makes sense if you did, but it'd be interesting to know what that looks like and how that ties in with a question I did have with, for you, which is sort of, you know, red flags around, the psychology around the, the the patient's perhaps thought processes. What is it that would be a red flag for you if there are such things? And how would you deal with that 
if you have someone that you can refer to or at what point do you go something weird's here you know you're off to hospital how, how does that play out yeah so with our particular working system we do have a direct referral pathway um it's common for uh people to go through initially the process with Anthony if they if they look up barbell psychology and then I would be more of the the coach for the lifestyle change or ongoing coaching if they suddenly have a resistance training goal per se um, when people come directly to me I'm very 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 fortunate to work alongside him in terms of if there's any cases or if I require any supervision or or case reviews when I would um, think of some kind of red flags or, or instances where it would be beneficial. I think first and foremost, as a, a role model myself, if I can act in a way that normalizes mental health and destigmatizes the need to seek care, I think there's a, whether it's helpful or unhelpful depends on the person and their context and their goals. I think as a general statement, we tend to only seek professional mental health care and support when shit hits the fan. So if yeah. we can at least bring about some of these conversations um, and acknowledge them. So as a, another way of embodying that is if I can bring up maybe what I'm noticing as a human and bring my humanness into the interaction. And so for instance, if I'm noticing feeling a bit wound up and, and they're also feeling wound up, if, if there's a way that I can, without making it about me, bring about some of my feelings or my feelings in, in past experiences, then that can also maybe open up the opportunity for them to express themselves through my vulnerability. So if, if we can have some conversations just to normalize nice. the things that the the unwanted the inner experiences, yeah. the fear, exactly. Mm -hmm. The, all these, the, the yeah. sadness, the, the loss, the grief. I, I, helping them to give them a vocabulary because sometimes I think that we do not have a vocabulary to express some of the feeling we have. We cannot differentiate them. We cannot express them properly. And the love, you know, when you say, let's normalize those, those discussions, let's make them always part of our session. That's why for us, massage therapists, those soft tissue therapists, hands-on therapists, this is quite a normal thing because it happens very, very often where people feel very safe and they open up. But I think we need to encourage more and we need to encourage um, uh, expression. And sometimes we don't have the right vocabulary for it to express um, yes. some of their feelings, isn't it? And, and with that, the the culture is very much geared towards more so maybe immediately reframing a negative into a positive or wanting to just focus on the positive experiences that we have. And, yeah. and in a yeah. way, yeah. inadvertently and unintentionally, maybe not holding enough space for these conversations to happen. I was going to say, I find that probably one of the most challenging aspects of our role as musculoskeletal therapists is, and I think we, we've touched on this before, Anna, is the expectation the client comes in with that such a conversation and the ability to have that space to have the conversation isn't really what they are expecting. They're expecting a form of intervention that feels in some way physical. Yeah, it's, it's, it's either a massage or it's the exercise or it's, mm -hmm. it's some sort of prescription as opposed to coming in to speak and also they they and don't know how you find it but i find that they give a less importance so it is way more important to to know where the pain come from uh, from a structural perspective it's way more important to know that i have a bulging disc than actually i'm feeling stressed because uh, my job is uh, is challenging at the moment or because I just lost my husband or so on, then don't, they don't consider those uh, uh, emotional cues as important 
within their well, within their physical well being um, as important as that the structure of you. And that's where I think there needs to be still a, still a, a shift from us therapists by societal belief. You know, the BPS, the, the, the BPS understanding of the person's health needs to be a societal level. Yes, if we can suddenly, if we can start having some of these conversations and seeing how we can maybe show examples or, or share some examples with confidentiality of when maybe some of our uh, clients or, or loved ones have reached out for professional help and kind of the the benefits if if we have some role models if if they have role models um so as a a person in a man's body as men i feel like we don't really open up about emotions as much as maybe women from from a general statement point of view so if i can suddenly start talking about sadness and, and grieving process the 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 man that i'm seeing in front of me the client who's a male might also start opening up because that's something that he never talks about. So, so if we can start having some of these conversations and, and engaging in some con- continuing education on them, there's a, a lot of resources out there. Um, then we can start normalizing. It's okay to seek help. It's it, you're, you're actually strong if you can reach out and have that vulnerability um, and open up about these things that you don't have to keep them bottled up inside or keep them kind of embodied in the diagnosis. It's like, it's, it's not about my fear. It's about my shoulder. It's about my shoulder joint. I don't want to talk yes. about my stress. Yes. Very Absolutely. Much so. Very much so. so I think that that probably brings us respectful of your time. It probably brings us to an, a nice point um, where we ask our guests to provide us um, uh, some theory to con- uh, sorry, some theory to practice content. <laughs> this idea that more theory um, no oh yeah no what is it, this idea that it's all very good us talking about this stuff but but where are the practical applications and and how can how can people who who listen to this podcast now or in a couple of years time actually take some of these concepts and apply them so i wonder if if you may, might be able to sort of sum up a couple of key points for us that you think actually this is what you could do today to to improve the likelihood of out, good outcomes with your clients um, and then maybe round that off perhaps with some directions to some resources to kickstart people if they wanted to explore this a bit further. Definitely, definitely. I think um, the first one, if we can find out uh, that magic question, I got it from, from Bronnie Lennox Thompson, what would the person be doing if their pain wasn't an issue? If, if their, um, their main concern wasn't as much of a problem what how would their life change or what would they be doing perhaps differently and again on top of that if we can maybe pre-frame it with something like a patient specific functional scale or maybe in our website in our marketing in our intake forms if we can include a functional function related question that just makes it a lot easier to steer towards the behavior change during that clinical conversation the the second one would be what I've made a mistake of in the past is judging the value of an intervention based off my perceptions of the evidence base surrounding it. So in a pragmatic way, rather than immediately um, judging someone's use of any kind of intervention, whatever that might be, instead looking at what is the, the function of that intervention or that self-management strategy. For instance, if someone takes painkillers for their persisting back pain, rather than me saying, oh, that's bad, we need to take that away, what function does that serve in, in, and in which context? So is it helpful? Is it working for them? I think we can be quick maybe to, to say, oh, we need to change that or we need to give them maybe a, a more active intervention or strategy or something different because of the side effects of medications. But instead making it about them and their reasons for that intervention, whatever it might be, whatever that self-management strategy might be, and then facilitating reflection on what are, how has it worked in the long-term versus the short-term? And maybe if there's different ways to provide uh, a similar effect, if they're open to something different. 
So that goes with the uh, act functional contextualism, which yep. is way too many syllables for 11, 10 p.m. <laughs> Sydney, Wednesday evening. But uh, the, so the last one would be making it, funnily enough, I've told about, I've mentioned, don't make it about us, don't make it about ourselves, make it about the person we're helping. At the same time, if we can practice some mindfulness of what shows up for us when we have a challenging client in front of us. So if someone has a flare up, how do we respond bodily, like with our body language, with our tone of voice, with our words, and is that helpful for them based on their goals? And if we're thinking about trying to embody safety, we've talked about embodying safety through our clinical environment, we're also that part of that environment and part of that context. So if we can be more mindful, aware, notice how our body reacts, for me, definitely it's, I shit myself. If someone has a flare up in front of me, I'm like, fuck, I need to change everything. And oh my God, they're going to sue me and tell their friends and family and I'll get a shit Google review. That's what comes up for me. So if yep. we can at least be aware of what shows up, then we can respond in a way that's more, more mindful and less reactive. Uh, that, that, wonderful, yeah, that, isn't it? That's, yeah, yeah not, that's not that wonderful. This hour has been a total waste of time, Dan, but that was golden. <laughs> that, that was gold. You know, be mindful of your own reaction because your own reaction will create a behavior change or we create feelings for the other person. That's, po that's powerful. Yeah, never underestimate the power that you yeah. have in your modeling. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's, modeling. That's, that's the biggest. Yeah, and remember yeah. that you are part of the clinical context that that person yes. is. That is, that is, you know, when, when we consider your own body language and, and, and tone and everything like that, it, 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 it it's obvious um, when you finally think about it, <laughs> but perhaps, mm -hmm. uh, you know, is, is missed. Um, no, that's wonderful. Thank you. And our resources so, before I forget. Yeah. So it basically, Everything I've said, I've learnt through the greats. So anything Bronnie Lennox Thompson comments, shares, whatever she breathes, everything is gold. So She's a great her. thinker of our times. Yes. Yeah. Um, and I'm taking Laura Rathbone's coaching pod, which I very much recommend for clinicians. She's got clinical mm -hmm. coaching. I haven't yep. managed to get into one of her pods yet. <laughs> yes. So, so highly recommend uh, the mentoring services that she does. And Anthony Berwick, so Barbell Psychology, for any questions or finding out a bit more about the approach. We've had, funnily enough, like four podcasts and probably we'll have more. So there's plenty of, of resources out there. Um, and finally, Russ Harris, in terms of um, any ACT courses. Um, he's the author of ACT Made Simple, and there's a great Facebook group as well. And then check out our Facebook group for, for resources as well. Uh, the knowledge exchange. I should probably know where I work. <laughs> <laughs> Fantastic. No, that's, that's brilliant. Thank you. Um, thank you very, very much, Dan. That's been that was a really, awesome. really insightful conversation. Um, and I mean, one of the things we love about doing, about doing this podcast, particularly for massage therapists is, is I think it, it opens up an awful lot of, um, opportunity to think and, and, and develop, far outside of the curriculum if i can call it that, that that massage therapists particularly in the uk might be taught um but still entirely within scope of practice in the and scope think, of practice yeah yeah i think what you've covered today hugely fits that bill in that this is easily within the scope of practice of uh, a a massage therapist seeking to help someone uh, in in pain discomfort injury uh and, and yet brings so much more richness to that interaction um, and, and probably provides a little bit of a headache to the therapists themselves in that first few occasions where they're trying to remain mindful about how they're behaving, wondering around how you know. the context comes across <laughs> and at the same time listening to the stories that are coming from the client. You know, it's just, <laughs> That was exactly my intention. I wanted people to be hyper-focused and hyper-vigilant on everything they do. No. Absolutely. It's, it's, <laughs> I think it's, it's a process, right? I think just like for clients, it's, it's a process ongoing.
Fantastic. And so Dan, um, just quickly then yourself, where can we, where can people find out a bit more about you? Cause obviously you do also provide mentoring services um, and, and you also run some courses yourself. So give us a, a quick, quick bio on yourself. What, what you're up to at the moment, what's coming up for you? Yep. So the knowledge exchange courses, we are running one in a few weeks time. We've got both online and in-person ones. Luckily now that all the COVID restrictions are slowly easing in our shores. Um, when it comes to clinical supervision, mentoring, clinical coaching, we run groups. So where we go through some of these concepts and processes in an experiential way. So looking at values, looking at creative hopelessness, looking at the challenges that arise in clinic. And I also run one-on-one mentoring services. So you can check out the knowledge exchange. We've got a Facebook group and a website, tkex.org. And otherwise you can search me up on Instagram for either really embarrassing dancing videos or watching everyone deadlift. Everyone. (laughs) There are a lot of awesome deadlifting videos. (laughs) I'm not going to speak on the dancing. (laughs) Please don't. That'll be for another podcast. (laughs) Uh, Dan, that's, that's been wonderful. Thank you so much for making time. Thank you, Dan. Thank you. Thank you so much. Uh, we look forward to hopefully speaking to you again very soon. <laughs>